the vast majority of Americans may have a sense, particularly after COVID, that something's seriously wrong with China maybe, but specifically the Chinese Communist Party. This is not the typical foreign adversary on another shore, gathered behind its army, aggressive, thinking about land warfare, even nuclear warfare. This is an enemy that's really permeated the United States, and it's part of our culture in a way. And we talk about elite capture, a lot of the leadership in America seems to be in the pocket of the Chinese. It is not the Soviet Union. It is not the Cold War. It's a new Cold War that is defined by many different elements, one of which is the fact that the Chinese Communist Party learned from the mistakes of the Soviet Union. The problems of the Chinese Communist Party are multiple, but fundamentally they are that they're communists. There's nothing Chinese about the Chinese Communist Party. It's not just the cronies around Xi in China, it's his cronies here. Sam Fattis, who has made the point very explicitly as a undercover operative for the Central Intelligence Agency, Joe Biden would be characterized as a, quote, controlled asset of the Chinese Communist Party. I think that is one of the things, in addition to what Brad started with, Xi Jinping is determined to surpass Mao Zedong and do things that he didn't get done, like take Taiwan. And I think he knows that he's not got a lot of time. But what happens if Xi drops dead? Bill, the answer to your question could well be it's the end of the party. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton, and today we're talking about China. And to talk about this, I brought in two of the men who know as much about this as anybody on the planet, I believe, maybe except the Chinese themselves. Uh, starting off today will be Frank Gaffney, who's the founder and executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy. And Frank has just recently authored a tremendous book called The Indictment, which is... Uh, Subtitle, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Its Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Uh, joining Frank is a senior fellow at uh, Center for Security Policy, Bradley Thayer, uh, who's also come out with a terrific book, Understanding the China Threat. And I think together, these are companion pieces for us to understand what's, hap what's been happening, what's happening now, and what to do about it. So, Frank, you and I talk every Monday on your wonderful show on Real America's Voice, and uh, I get to turn the tables and ask you the first question. So uh, um, I, you, you call me master of the universe. I'm going to call you master of the bigger universe. Uh, Frank, where are, paint, paint, uh, paint the picture for us. Where, Thank you, Bill. Thank you for joining me each week and for the chance to be on this wonderful program as well. I think what we want to try to do today, and I couldn't be more pleased to do it with a man who genuinely is a master of this particular topic, uh, right there, is connect a lot of dots, Bill. Um, I think both of our books are sort of rooted in the premise that the vast majority of Americans may have a sense, particularly after COVID, that something's seriously wrong with China maybe, but specifically the Chinese Communist Party. But they may not fully understand just how wrong uh, and why, and most especially what we have to now do about it if we are to survive. Um, our country, yes, and I think you're right, Western civilization more generally. So that's our mission today, as I see it, is to help people come away with a sense of uh, what animates the Chinese Communist Party, 
where will we be headed if they have their way? And if we don't want to go there, and I think on the basis of our conversation today, it's going to be pretty clear we don't want to go where they want to take us, well, what we are going to have to do. Well, we talked about this before, and I want Brad to weigh in on this, but this is not the typical foreign adversary on another shore, um, gathered behind its army, aggressive, thinking about land warfare, you know, even nuclear warfare. This is, a, this is an enemy that's really permeated the United States, and it's, 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 it's part of our culture in a way. And we talk about elite capture. A lot of the leadership in America uh, seems to be in the pocket of the Chinese. Indeed, Bill. And it's a great pleasure to join you uh, on the, uh, uh, the show with Frank, of course, who's the expert in, 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 in this issue. And his book, The Indictment, does a wonderful job capturing this fundamental problem, which is, indeed, it is not the Soviet Union. It is not the Cold War that we fought after World War II until 1991, uh, it's a new Cold War uh, that is defined by many different elements, one of which is uh, the, ex the fact that the Chinese Communist Party learned from the mistakes of the Soviet Union. And what the Soviet Union did was to isolate itself from the Western economic ecosystem and political system. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, probably the greatest strategist of the 20th century, recognized that he was not going to be vulnerable the way the Soviets were and that he was going to enter with prodigious assistance from the West, the Western economic ecosystem. Uh, and that is he was going to make partners of Wall Street, of the Chamber of Commerce, and of the Democrat and in time Republican Party. And Frank's book does an exceptional job of illuminating how that money came to distort, uh, came to separate disaggregate our ability to think strategically when it came to uh, the China threat. Was he, he was leading China in the 90s? Uh, well, after, especially after Mao died. Okay, so uh, Mao died in, in 80... Uh, in 76. 76. And so by 78, uh, Deng Xiaoping was uh, in charge and really was until his death in 1997. Now, it was a, somebody who came after whom helped orchestrate their entry into the World Trade Organization. Jiang Qiumin, yes, uh, uh, did. But it was uh, Deng uh, really working with the Clinton administration. Um, and the Clinton administration is uh, odious for many reasons in this respect, but because they got rid of the linkage between human rights and the renewal of most favored nation trade status, which was very important. One of the few tools that we had really to discipline the Chinese Communist Party was thrown overboard by the Clinton administration, who also put them on the path to the World Trade Organization. So the problem that Frank identifies has really as its locus uh, of that period uh, in American history, the 93, 94, 95. Well, and if all, and, and, and with all these things, there are personal agendas, and a lot of people in the, in the Clinton administration worked, for example, Goldman Sachs, Bob Rubin, Treasury Secretary. Goldman Sachs was making a fortune or wanted to make a fortune developing trade and, and uh, financial business with China. So he was helping lead that effort. Indeed he was. And who else yes. did we have in the Clinton administration? That, uh, Lloyd uh, Benson as Treasury Secretary, okay. who also was uh, in first Clinton administration, obviously. Ron Brown, who became Secretary of Commerce, uh, was also instrumental. 
in advancing this, and Bill Clinton himself, who recognized that he could use Chinese money uh, through cutouts, uh, and uh, Al Gore, who realized the same, that they could use uh, this money to fund their campaign and the campaigns of others, uh, which sadly put us into uh, really the, the first order of indictment, I suppose, Frank, would be uh, those individuals who, uh, in essence, sold out the American domestic political system uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. Among other things, and, and Brad's been very kind about my book. Let me just salute him for his as well, because I think both of them are really making the case that in addition to the political damage done to our system by virtue of this elite capture, uh, many of the people that you've just mentioned were involved, and indeed Goldman Sachs and BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and many others of your old uh, friends on Wall Street were instrumental in complementing the political warfare piece with the financial warfare that the Chinese Communist Party perpetrated by transferring, by some estimates, three to six trillion dollars from American public pension funds and mutual funds and exchange-traded funds and other investment vehicles to the coffers of the Chinese Communist Party, albeit through, you know, various front companies that it owns, basically. And, and we now believe that this was part of a deeper, deeper, deeper long-term strategy the Chinese had. For sure. Because you, uh, Brad Frank accuses me every week of being uh, complicit in this. And in fact, I think I was. I mean, on Wall Street, it was basically accepted that we were going to work with China. We were going to trade with China. We were going to help them finance uh, their, their businesses. And by doing that, we're going to make them wealthier, they're going to become a liberal democracy, and welcome to the world community. And I guess none of us had any feeling that this hide and bide, which I don't think was known to us, was, was actually operating even at that time. Well, especially I think people in the various sectors of the economy that were only too happy to try to cash in on this were if not totally oblivious to what was really going on, certainly looking the other way. And the trouble is, Bill, that, that regrettably, the cumulative effect of that was basically to enable Deng Xiaoping to perpetrate exactly what Brad's just talked about, which was essentially um, a capitalizing on the useful idiots and their greed or their, I don't know, idealism to give them the maximum benefit of the doubt to essentially transform their country, China's country, that is, the Chinese Communist Party's country, and ours as well. Well, it seems like what the Chinese, the leadership did was they blended their, their uh, communist agenda with a cultural and historical agenda, and it isn't, uh, wasn't their center of humiliation a big factor that they used to generate uh, antipathy towards the West and, and really fueled the 
everybody in China's desire to, to execute on the strategy? Uh, well, certainly uh, they did. The center of humiliation from uh, the first opium war uh, in 1839 to uh, 1842 uh, uh, to the time when the Chinese Communist Party came into power, uh, 1949. Um, but that's a ruse. Uh, it was the Chinese Communist Party sought to overthrow the United States since it came to power with Soviet help, with the help of the Communist International. Uh, by and communists in our government. And communists That's in right. our government and elsewhere uh, in 1949. So they've been at war with us for a very long time, although we uh, haven't recognized it, and many still don't recognize it uh, until uh, very recently. So, But could I just say, and Brad's the historian here, but they were building on a tradition of xenophobia in China. It was there under successive emperors, right? So the Chinese were putting uh, Chinese communist characteristics, they might say, on that particular animosity towards the West, uh, but it, uh, it was not entirely foreign uh, to, I think, the Chinese tradition by any means, pre-CCP. Uh, certainly. Uh, it also illuminates why Taiwan is such a threat. The existence of Taiwan uh, is such a threat to the Chinese Communist Party because Taiwan showed whatever difficulties the Chinese people suffered in the past, uh, China can be a democratic uh, state. It can be a free and democratic entity. Uh, it can go through a difficult political transition to become the state that it is now which is a key partner of the United States uh, of, and should be indeed an ally of the United States, but it shows that China can be a democracy. It does not have to suffer under the yoke of emperors in the past or of the Chinese Communist Party uh, today, which is and, one of the reasons. And at why least as prosperous as China is and per in, capita. Indeed, and, and more so mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, uh, in reality. It can have positive relations with the rest of the world, the Japanese, the Filipinos, the United States, and, and so many other states in international politics. So its existence is a threat, an existential threat, to the Chinese Communist Party, which is one of the reasons why they're determined to destroy it, to invade it and conquer it. Uh, this is Bill Walton. I'm here with uh, Brad Thayer and Frank Gaffney, both with the Center for security policy, and we're uh, talking about the roots of the problems that we're facing today with China and why Taiwan is such an issue. Uh, Frank, is there a is there a scenario where where the desire to take back Taiwan goes away, or is this going to be a permanent condition of the? I think it goes away when the Chinese Communist Party goes away. I, I don't see these guys doing it. In part, as as Brad says, this is a threat to their entire house of cards but it's also i think typically the case that uh, tyrants generally require some foreign adversary as a pretext for justifying the kind of repression that they practice against their own people when i say uh, repression as you know bill in the book the indictment we've got nine charges the first of which are the crimes against humanity that the Chinese Communist Party has inflicted upon its own people, by some estimates, as many as 100 million of whom have been murdered, not counting the 400 million 
at least, that they boast of having killed mostly baby girls in the womb. The one part child, of their the population. One child policy. Yeah. yeah. So there's never really been anything quite like it. You started your opening question was, is this unprecedented? In that respect alone, it's on a scale that sets it apart from, I would argue, all of the other horrific regimes in history put together. Well, Bradley, you've written, uh, you, Brad, just wrote a piece not too long ago about the the conditions that would cause the Chinese Communist Party to uh, uh, meet its meet a meet its end. I mean, is it, is that something that's imminent? I mean, what what is happening that makes that makes uh, Xi and the communists po- uh, vulnerable? Within the realm of possibility, certainly, and particularly if we push the issue, uh, which it's not clear uh, that we will. The problems of the Chinese Communist Party are multiple, uh, but fundamentally they are that they're communists, uh, which is divorced <laughs> from Chinese civilization, from Chinese historical experience, and from Chinese uh, political systems. Uh, there's nothing Chinese about the Chinese Communist Party. There's a lot that's communist, very, very little uh, that's Chinese. Communism everywhere fails. Right? It, it works by repression, it works by the crackdown, the human rights violations that Frank was just noting. So the, ideolo- the ideology is incoherent uh, to begin with. Um, they've survived by squeezing the Chinese people, by having the quote-unquote friends of China, like Henry Kissinger and so many others on Wall Street and in centers of power in the Western world that allowed them to penetrate the Western economic ecosystem and as a result of that thrive. But fundamentally, they are facing dire problems. Those are demographic problems. Those are economic problems. The real estate market, of course, which has been so important for their own funding, uh, is collapsing, endemic corruption. Um, And the misrule of the party, and specifically of Xi Jinping, and his paranoid crackdowns against uh, his ministers, defense ministers come disappear, foreign ministers disappear, generals disappear through anti-corruption campaigns and other elements which are driven by his paranoia, his fear that there will be a coup against him uh, and uh, that he will be overthrown. So their own misrule uh, and the burden and the tyranny that the Chinese people have had to incur has reached a point now which is, to my mind, is, is a pivot point. Well, well, it's an unusual type of communism, though. Frank and I have talked about this, and that China has more billionaires than, than the United States. And they allowed a hybrid system where a lot of entrepreneurs were encouraged to build their business, and many of them tacked, many of them and just, you know... Uh, mundane businesses like tutoring. And then Xi comes, decides somehow that these people are a threat, to your point, and he starts shutting everything down. And he shut down the private tutoring in- industry overnight. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends in the private equity business that thought that was a great investment found uh, it was worth zero um, in like a, can, like can, within, can within a week. A related right? point? Yeah, because sure, I, I was going to you. You, you, I, yeah. you mentioned... Uh, Henry Kissinger, Brad, and you're talking about, you know, the caprice that operates inside of China, specifically that of Xi Jinping. One of the things that has just been infuriating to me is that a guy who enabled so much of this is 
the former vice president of the United States, currently the president of the United States, in his engineering of a deal back in May of 2013, at a moment when, like with the World Trade Organization, the Chinese were looking for new access to Western markets or Western capital in this case, Joe Biden helped get a memorandum of understanding agreed between the United States and China that gave the Chinese Communist Party's companies preferential access, as you know, Bill, to our capital markets. And it is by virtue of the fact that uh, companies um, that have since gone belly up or had Xi Jinping knock the pegs out from under them have never had to be subjected to the kind of transparency and accountability and just audits that any other company registered on our capital markets has to undergo that has enabled them to have this kind of access. I mentioned three to six trillion dollars. That is a direct result, I believe, of essentially uh, American investors specifically being denied the kind of knowledge that they have to have. You know, you've been in the material risk business all your life to make informed judgments about what they're doing. And I fear that a lot of them, probably tens of millions of us, who have money in unwittingly in China, thanks to Larry Fink and Steve Schwartzman and Ray Dalio and the like, are going to lose their shirts when this thing goes seriously sideways, as uh, Brad is suggesting it might. Well, it's becoming uninvestable, and some of this is Xi's paranoia. I mean, he shut down the security firms in China. If you're an investor, you all know this, and you want to invest in a country or company, you do due diligence and you find out about, you know, how it's organized, who owns it, um, what the market is, who the competitors are, you know, key, key risks. Unless it's a state secret. Frank, you know, we've had this conversation before when I'm on your show. You always take my punchlines. <laughs> Just wanted to get to the point. Well, <laughs> You come as a guest on Frank's show, and he. Well, this was. I never. I never interrupted him. Still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's the point, though. Is you? It's become uninvestable because if you're an investor, you can't find out what's really happening, and that's on purpose. And they've invaded. You know, the the police have come to the offices of, like Mm -hmm. I think Bain and Company, and in Beijing. Well, indeed, uh, they have, and it it of course compels us to ask: Well, why was there any investment in the? in the People's Republic of China to begin with, right? When indeed there, there shouldn't have been any, we should not have invested one cent. The fact that we did, again, helped them with the rise and has now made them that existential threat uh, that it is uh, to the United States. But their own laws, which have recently, since 2017, there have been a series of laws that have passed, including a national security law that compels any Chinese entity uh, that's doing business with anyone uh, to um, share information uh, with the Chinese intelligence service or with uh, ultimately uh, with the party. So no American should have anything to do with the People's Republic of any entity in Hong Kong or the People's Republic of China because of 
you mentioned due diligence, right? If you want to protect the privacy, if you want to uh, protect uh, your own information, uh, you should have nothing to do with them. By law, they're required uh, to share any information um, uh, with the party that the party asks or that they would volunteer for their own reasons. Uh, and that puts every American investor uh, in great jeopardy. Uh, and, and it won't be long, I think, Bill, before this really comes home uh, to, through lawsuits or through other means. And Frank, I know you've talked about this on, uh, on your show as well, that it really comes to the fore. Uh, and it compels us again also to ask that it's just time to break with China. Just say no to the PRC. Amen. There's no reason whatsoever to invest in them, to have anything to do with them. Uh, there are other sources. You could invest in the United States, heaven forbid, uh, that anyone, that anyone invests that. in the United States, uh, or Vietnam, or India, Indonesia. Uh, there are always alternatives, right? We're always taught in Economics 101 that uh, there are always alternatives uh, to any good or service uh, which is offered. And it's time uh, to uh, compel us to recognize that's the case. We need to do that today. We should have done it a long, long time ago, but it must be done today. Amen. Uh, this is Bill Walton, and I'm here with Brad Thayer and uh, Frank Gaffney, Center for Security Policy. And I hope you've been listening carefully. And we don't give investment advice on this show, but we want to be clear that we think the proper allocation to China in your investment portfolio is zero. And uh, if it's not already zero, you ought to be calling your broker to talk with them about what you have in your portfolio that might be related to China. Um, and we want to talk about the mutual funds and the, and the indexes mm -hmm. that the Chinese companies are in. But I have a, before we get to that, I have a question. Why did Xi drop the hide and bide? Because China was doing great. They had everybody going in there. They were taking all, they were making joint ventures, and they're saying, we'll do a joint venture if you give us all your, all your, uh, your mm -hmm. intellectual property. And it was working. And we were lulled, and we were, they were making people rich. And, you know, Bob, Bob Lighthizer, who was the U.S. Trade Representative, will say, I dealt with all these companies. And point blank, you're not going to make money in China unless they want you to make money in China. And the instant you don't, you're out. But G changed that. Why, why was this hubris? Was this something uh, else? Was he... Well, it's the nature of communism. It's not the antecedents of what Xi has done were present in rulers before. But what Xi Jinping, through his megalomania, is identified himself as a Mao Zedong greater than Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China. Um, and so you have three fundamental problems that make the PRC a threat. Uh, just like cops investigating a car crash uh, bill. Uh, cops look first at the driver. Was the driver drunk? Well, then that explains the car crash, okay? The driver of the People's Republic of China is a megalomaniac named Xi Jinping, uh, who's determined to achieve, uh, in the near term, uh, some dire objectives, including the conquest of Taiwan and the overthrow of the United States as the dominant state in international politics. If the driver is as sober as a judge, the cops look at the car or the brakes pad. Well, the car is a Soviet knockoff. It's called the Chinese Communist Party. It's a threat to every other vehicle on the road, every pedestrian, every entity uh, on it. So the car is a threat. 
and you could get rid of Xi tomorrow. He could pass away uh, today. He does have serious health problems, but we need to recognize that. Uh, but the new driver of the car is going to be heavily influenced by the Soviet knockoff uh, car itself. And then finally, if the car is uh, brand new, it's in great shape, cops look at the road condition. And all of us are great drivers when we're driving on Interstate 80 in, Can in Iowa, where the road is flat and goes on forever. But we're not good drivers in a whiteout on hairpin turns. So the road conditions are dire road conditions. They're very dangerous road conditions. And what this means is that China has continually grown. Its military power has grown, diplomatic might, technological might, and economy uh, has grown, again, because we let it into the Western ecosystem. So why do we have a threat from the PRC? The driver is dangerous, the car is dangerous, and the road conditions are dangerous. And so we need to recognize that this is a complicated problem and, and an immediate uh, problem, and it needs to be recognized uh, as such. Yeah, but we're always asking ourselves with the tin pot dictators in all the third world countries, how does this dictator last so long? Well, it turns out the dictator is surrounded by cronies who are doing very well with the system, thank you. And so their incentive to get rid of that person is low because they're big beneficiaries. In but, China, but you've got you get in China though you've got eighty million members of the party, in a population we don't know what the real population is. They're probably declining. overstating the number. It's declining. Um, so, what about the eighty million members of the of the Chinese Communist Party who are benefiting from the system? Well, I, I would just add that in addition to this brilliant analogy, it's not just the cronies around Xi in China. It's his cronies here, and and what. Brad didn't quite get to is one of the reasons why I think he feels that it's safe to drop the mask, expose the true intentions, and become very explicitly aggressive is the correlation of forces, or what they call, I guess, comprehensive national power is such now that that can be done with impunity, uh, starting with, for example, the fact that that guy I mentioned who helped engineer the financing of so much of this transformation is now the president of the United States. He's also, as we've talked about on many occasions, Bill, another distinguished member of our committee on the present danger of China, and I thank you for being one, and I thank you for being one, is Sam Fattis, who has made the point very explicitly as a career undercover operative for the Central Intelligence Agency that in the language of that trade, Joe Biden would be characterized as a, quote, controlled asset of the Chinese Communist Party, unquote. I think that is one of the things, in addition to what Brad started with, Xi Jinping is determined to surpass Mao Zedong and do things that he didn't get done, like take Taiwan. And I think he knows that he's not got a lot of time. But as Brad pointed out, though, even though he's enabled through their very successful execution of their elite capture strategy, enabled by many, many people in leadership in this country, he still has a problem in China. I mean, the real Internal. estate market's imploded. Evergrande, which has got $260 billion in debt, it may go into liquidation. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just teetering on the brink. I mentioned he's made the country uninvestable, so it's not attracting capital. Um, the consumer market is is, is flat, and... Uh, 
and people are cranky. He locked him down uh, pretty aggressively with the zero COVID thing, and 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 and, and people are cranky. I mean, what? But as we talked about in one of our Committee on the Present Danger China webinars, that would appear to be good news for us. By the way, let's plug those but webinars. But maybe not, let's, please. Because we're only going to touch the tip of the iceberg here. This is a massive, massive subject. We have drilled down on most of the things that we've talked about. When and where are your webinars? Brad's, they're all where, available where can we find for free at presentdangerchina.org. There's a subscription option there so that you can make sure you get every one of them. Each week we do at least one. And in this case, we talk, Bill, about whether it's good news or bad news that the sorts of things that uh, you've just described, Brad, are happening to China. You did too. And and the bottom line seems to be, as I said earlier, in response to your question about uh, you know their attitude towards the rest of us, having a foreign adversary that enables them to justify or at least to assert the imperative of sacrifice and submission and repression even on their own people. Well, we wondered is, whether the is one of those things were, that were they often run. do. Well, I, I think they certainly were here. But the point is what they were doing then and what they're doing now is parlaying these internal difficulties, I think, into elevating this idea that China is facing these foreign threats and war is now in prospect. And and you, you ought to hear from Brad on just how often Xi Jinping talks that up with his people. Well, his internal speeches are very, very militant. Indeed. And he is, he, is, he is preparing people for uh, his people for war. Well, we need to recognize that he's a communist, right? And so he's determined to bring about the changes that communists want to see. Uh, and that includes the destruction of the United States the international liberal order that the United States created with the British in the wake of uh, World War II. He wants to crush human liberty uh, and human rights. He's done that successfully within China, uh, increasingly becoming draconian. He wants to do that globally as well. Everything he touches is defined by exploitation of people and the environment. Right, Wherever China, any Chinese entity goes abroad, uh, those elements uh, define it. So you asked why he dropped hide and hide. Well, he he dropped it because they're powerful enough to begin asserting themselves. In a way, Deng adopted hide and hide, and Deng Xiaoping was a communist, just as Xi Jinping was, but he was a weak communist. Um, Xi Jinping is a communist, but now he's a strong communist because China's strong, because the PRC has grown in every aspect of comprehensive national power. So it can now begin to put the rubber on the road uh, in terms of bringing about those changes, as it's done through Belt and Road Initiative and political penetration. But again, when we recognize he's a communist, communists want to wage war, but that war is to, a kinetic component of warfare is to be avoided unless it's absolutely necessary. Political warfare is what he has done part in, in a way which is absolutely superb and uh, uh, essentially is, is the archetype of how to do this, to bring about the expansion of your interests without meeting any resistance. Well, he has, China has but risen. He's cre but he's created an enormous amount of resistance. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative has become the loan-to-own business. I mean, people have been the beneficiaries of this money are now waking up to the fact that they've 
they owe this, they owe their soul to the company store, and the company store right. is China, and people are beginning very, very, very wary of dealing with them. But Bill, think about what the PRC has done. In 1990, the PRC was about, let's say, 1.8 percent of world gross domestic product. Today, before COVID, it was approximately between 18 and 19 percent of world gross domestic product. So you've gone from a trivial, barely a great power, to now a rival of the United States. And you've done that in a generation. Now, not even Bismarck did that, right? This ranks Chinese leaders as, it's, it's horrible to say, but we have to recognize the reality and face it uh, directly, uh, that they have gone from a very weak state, which might have very easily had regime change in the wake of uh, Tiananmen Square in June of 1989, to now a state which is um, very forcefully uh, showing its military power, um, whether those are intercepts of United States aircraft operating in um, international airspace or pressure against the Japanese, Australians, Canadians, Taiwanese, uh, the world over, you are seeing a state now which is increasingly segueing from political warfare to kinetic warfare. And so we may be on the cusp of whatever the horrors of Ukraine, of course, and the, the, uh, the, the, uh, of uh, the war between Hamas and Israel, we may be in the very near term on, the, on uh, facing uh, a massive conflict uh, between the United States and uh, the People's Republic. Well, people speculated about Xi's health. Yes. What happens if Xi drops dead? Uh, well, they got more where he came from. Well, that's my question. I mean, who and why? What? 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 What's that look like? But could I just add one last thing? It depends in part on what we do. If after Tiananmen Square we had exacerbated the problems for the Chinese instead of sending Brent Scowcroft over to tell them that it's going to be business as usual. We'll get you into the World Trade Organization, among other things. If if Joe Biden hadn't bailed them out with that memorandum of understanding, and if we don't bail them out now, Bill, the answer to your question could well be it's the end of the party. It's well, over. We're in the midst of bailing them out. We are trying. We've sent over four cabinet-level officials to China in the last, what, eight months, nine months, and every single one of them right. seemed to do a better job of bowing down to the uh, to the emperor. Grumble. The other, I mean, Yellen, in particular, the body language there was was egregious. Uh, and Biden, they didn't they have him sitting at the kids' table at a state dinner? I mean, Blinken, Blinken, mm. Blinken, Biden. Yes, well, they they kind of merged together. <laughs> yeah. Biden, Blinken, mind. and Nod. I guess they say. Blinken was at the what 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 uh, what foundation did he run that was a beneficiary of millions of dollars of Chinese money? Uh, the Penn Biden Center. The Penn was Biden one of, Center. Uh, well, that's why the, uh, I conflated the two. Which was uh, in excess of sixty million dollars. Uh, we expect from uh, from China. Uh, from China and uh, unnamed persons. But, but rather than exploiting the weakness now and figuring out strategies to to exacerbate that and maybe make Taiwan safe and 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 and, and create a peaceful, uh, uh, you know, South China Sea, we're 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 engaging. Well, I guess their words engagement. I mean, they want to bring, they want to keep them going. Doubling down. Indeed they do. And, and that has been um, 
a major failing uh, of the United States. Uh, it has been a major failing of American strategists to allow this uh, to happen, and it's been a major failing of the American elite to allow this. To, for the sake of a little bit more of profit, right, what you're doing is you're sacrificing your birthright. What you're doing is you're allowing an entity to continue to grow, uh, an entity that conceivably could destroy the United States, and is doing everything it can through fentanyl, right, which is chemical weapon, uh, chemical warfare. warfare directed against the United States, or hollowing out American industrial base, or doing everything it can to dishearten uh, American citizens, uh, to weaken American citizens, and. This has to end, and it has to end today. And this is, it's, it, it, this is absolutely the critical point. They're an enemy of the United States. They always have been. They've worked in conjunction, sadly, with many in the American elite who've profited. But the cost of that has been, in many respects, it, it raises the risk of the existential loss of the United States. That of our defeat uh, in a kinetic war or a, a slower defeat in a longer political warfare uh, campaign. And this compels all Americans today to recognize that they're the enemy and demand change, to demand that we no longer identify it as a partner and those who seek to continue any type of relationship with the PRC are no friends well, of, America, well, of the United States. Well, most, of the, of, the most of the people I know on Wall Street and in the business community just hope this unpleasantness will pass mm -hmm. so they can go back to doing business the way they did before. In, and, indeed. Yeah. Make more you know, money. So there's the recognition is, is, is not there that this is a fundamental long-term trend. Rather, they just think it's a cyclical thing that will pass with the next political win. Could I go back to what I said at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, we're here just, uh, trying to connect dots. Yeah, let's do it. I think, Brad and you both have talked about this. It is not an accident, comrade, as communists <laughs> like to say, that you're seeing a conflagration on the continent of Europe. You're now seeing a conflagration in the Middle East. There may yet be one or more fronts opened up yet. But what's coming for sure as a result, I believe, of the Chinese Communist Party deliberately setting those fires, encouraging their proxies to act aggressively, to distract us, to deplete our resources, and perhaps even render us incapable of defending ourselves, when they act aggressively, whether it's against Taiwan or any of the other places that Brad has just enumerated, but I'm reasonably sure, having an, another critical dot that needs to be connected here, is the deployment inside our country in recent months of tens of thousands of Chinese People's Liberation Army special operators there's every reason to believe that another front, another place where those arsonists will be lighting fires is right here in America. So let me connect the dots, or let me recap the dots you just gave me. You're saying that the Chinese said to Putin, if you go into Ukraine, we won't get in your way. That's okay. Not only and we won't get in your way, we'll help you. 
will hold become your, your code ally. at the least. Okay, so that's one he was guy. supposed to get it done in seventy-two days, seventy-two no, no, hours didn't. rather. He didn't. But it's involved. Okay, so there, but there the was, as there... long as they didn't interfere with the genocide games, the Olympics. And you're saying now also that China was was in relation in had the relationship with Iran and Hamas also was saying this is a good time for you to act. Go for it. And you look at the spectacle of two of our aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean, pulling them out of the South kind of sea. I don't, I don't think, well, I think one is actually still here, but it could have been used there's in the one, South. There's one in Westpac right now. So, uh, and then the other massive dot is the open border we have. And the number of people that have come into this country, young men come into this country that you know, first we thought well, I don't know what we, there are all sorts of categories of people who would want to harm the United States. It's a long list. And they're working together. So all these pieces are working Part of together. a very unsavory picture. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show, and this is a sort of dismayed Bill Walton talking with Frank Gaffney and Brad Thayer about uh, connecting the dots and looking at events on the world stage right now, and they all point towards... Uh, some sort of coordination, and perhaps the, uh, would, Brad, would you call it the head of the snake? Is, yes, uh, is the CCP, is the Chinese Communist Party. It's the uh, source of evil in the modern world, to borrow from Ronald Reagan's March 1983 uh, speech, very famous address that he gave in Florida and Orlando. Uh, before he took down the last one. Uh, before, uh, terming the Soviet Union as the center of evil in the, in the modern world. We need to recognize that the CCP is all of that. Putin would not have invaded Ukraine. Hamas would have not acted at the behest of Iran with the green light uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. So we need to recognize the CCP is the source of enormous instability in international politics and great danger for the United States and its allies uh, in international politics. How many people? It's also tremendously vulnerable, as a snake is tremendously vulnerable uh, in the right circumstances. You're, it, it, you, this is an entity which is extremely vulnerable. If we had leadership to act against it, uh, the, there's the possibility working with the diaspora that, uh, uh, and with good people, people of goodwill around the world, but certainly within China, uh, to overthrow it. Uh, and so, uh, but sadly, we don't have that leadership. Well, the just to take your point and push it further, I don't think most people are aware of how how many millions of Chinese have spread out all over the world on be, and working on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And you look at the Western Hemisphere, you look at Central and South America, um, just from an economic standpoint, I think China's become the largest one of the largest trading partners with almost all the countries in uh, in China, and they had a hand in flipping in, in all the Central and Latin America. Central and Latin America. I, Pardon, I misspoke. They had a hand, I think, also in the fact that the governments are all left of center in the Americas. Again, not an accident, comrade. Well, those are people who have been helped to gain power in part by those very relationships and the presence of the Chinese Communist Party and its strategic interests, the Belt and Road Initiative, among other things, to bring them into a global sphere. You talked about the post-World War II era that we ushered in, we're in a different era now. Once you've seen this paradigm, once you see these patterns, it's hard to unsee them. I mean, let me play the skeptic. Yeah, is, there, is, there another, is there another explanation? Is this just 
you know, communism's in the air, or 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 what is it? I mean, do do you think the Chinese have been actively working absolutely. these strategies in it's, each it's one of these? The, absolutely, I think. A, a, a problem that we face as well is that there's a lack of understanding of communist ideology and an unwillingness to take it seriously. Uh, when in fact, that's exactly what we should do to recognize that they're at war with us. They've proclaimed it most recently when Xi Jinping proclaimed people's war in 2019 uh, against the United States as a way of mobilizing the Chinese people, as a way of telling the Chinese people there are going to be hard times ahead. Uh, when conflict comes, the Chinese people are going to incur uh, uh, the costs uh, of uh, war against the United States uh, and its allies. So when you take that seriously, Bill, you're exactly right. You do see the world in a different way. And these changes in, through the Belt and Road Initiative or in governments in Central South America or the world o over are part of the fruits of the political warfare campaign that they've been waging against us. It's all warfare all the time directed against us. And unrestricted warfare, so that takes place in the political realm, it takes place in an economic realm, it takes place in the fact that they've penetrated our electrical grid with uh, transformers that are uh, built in China and that are known to have- 400 of them. Are known to have uh, backdoors and that also physically could be destroyed uh, as well, but also could be destroyed through uh, cyber means. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and we did this because we didn't take them seriously, right? It was the Chinese transformer was a few dollars cheaper. So you bought the Chinese transformer and for a few dollars, right? What did you get? You got the destruction of the American electrical grid because you weren't seriously thinking about security because you didn't understand the threat. Uh, that the PRC posed. So you got a few dollars and it cost you your electrical grid. Uh, so who's... Or, or just a further point, or you didn't want to understand. It's that willful blindness thing. And, and you know, we've had um, uh, just recently uh, an expose uh, by a group we work with called the Coalition for a Prosperous America in which they established that Vanguard, uh, one of the largest, as you know, um, of uh, the funds in which Americans are invested, has, in addition to the 200 or so Chinese companies that are registered on the U.S. capital markets, thousands of Chinese companies that don't get even minimal scrutiny, that are so-called A-shares that are bought up by Vanguard and FTSE Russell okay. and outfits like it. And the point of all of that is to say, Bill, that um, they were leaders of the Vanguard Fund, were interviewed by the Financial Times for their comments on what's going on here. Are you, are you doing any due diligence on these firms? Uh, as I recall, something like 60 of them work directly, not just indirectly, but directly for the People's Liberation Army. And eight of them were actually sanctioned by the United States government. And the answer that they got from Vanguard, and I'm sure it's from lots of your friends on Wall Street, they get the same. Here he it's goes not, again. It's my, yeah, it's my fault. Well, you cop to it. I'm just <laughs> noting it. The point is, they were told very bluntly, if it's not illegal, we're going to do it. So 
That's the willful blindness. Vanguard said that. That's what they yeah, told that's what they the uh, financial that, times. That, that and, and our great colleague, Roger Robinson, has uh, just done um, uh, work without parallel uh, on this threat. Amen. Well, that's concerning. But in terms of the dots, I mean, having operated a private, you know, a, a company, your, your degrees of freedom to do things when you're running a company are limited. Now, you can be manufacturing uh, military technology. You can be stealing military technology, that sort of thing. What I worry about is the dot that we didn't really talk about, which is the WHO and the international organizations that China's begun to dominate. And they practically have, talk about elite capture, they have the head of the WHO yeah. uh, as, as their operative. And now, literally, and now the Biden administration wants to turn our sovereignty over to the WHO so they can declare any little thing that comes up as, a, as an emergency, emergency. And, and, and claim um, all the powers that they had during the lockdown. Yeah. I, I confess, when we put this book to bed, uh, shortly thereafter, we realized that a whole nother line of attack of this unrestricted warfare that Brad talked about is what they call global governance. And just as you say, Bill, in the microcosm of the World Health Organization, it's true of the United Nations, it's true of any number of other outfits, the World Economic Forum included. These guys have, the Chinese Communist Party has found willing partners some of them are communists, some of them are go-along-to-get-along folks, capitalists, globalists, what have you. Even Islamists, by the way, are willing to play ball, notwithstanding the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, those crimes against humanity, is engaged in genocidal murder of millions of Uyghur Muslims. But the point is that through this vehicle of taking over these international organizations, you can get accomplished the takedown of Western civilization and the rule-based order, as they like to, me, to say. That, to me, you go to the heart of the matter. This could actually, that would be the one thing you want to control. Mm -hmm. It's the object. I mean, you can have the capital markets. I'll take, I'll take the ability to shut down society. Health. 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 And everything becomes a health issue. Now, to what extent... Do you think the climate change agenda is driven by China, and they're they are the chief beneficiary of the climate change climate change agenda? They make all the uh, components of wind and solar. They control all the rare rare minerals. earth minerals that go into it. Batteries, uh, uh, and and they understand that if uh, it succeeds, it's going to shut down the Western economies, the civilized economies. Uh, it's going to further impoverish. Especially if we give up fossil fuels, which we have. We to have right. fossil fuels. And, and meantime, what are they building now? Two coal plants a week in at China? Least, least I mean, one. they are utterly unconcerned about what what this is. Do you think that's part of the, is that also on there? Do they have, in their war room, Absolutely. do they have, we well, talk it, about it, the warfares, do they have a climate warfare uh, 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 room? Of course, it, it weakens the West. Uh, yeah. And so it introduces vulnerabilities that they can exploit. So, of course, they're uh, uh, supported. Of course, they're doing everything they can, while at the same time being the world's worst polluters. Yeah. Uh, and destroying the environment, destroying uh, uh, flora and fauna uh, in the entire region and seeking to uh, 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 to spread that. So I Helped I, along by their friends like John Kerry, who is perfectly prepared to go there and help them legitimate them, reward them. 
all the while, they're very much part of this problem. If, if you believe that mankind is making a measurable impact on the climate, they're at the forefront of doing so. China's making the Chinese big, well, they've, they've also maybe that's some help with some other Asian countries, but there's a Texas-sized uh, flotsam of, uh, of plastic, plastic waste, and most of that comes out of the rivers in China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean they do. They've got the dirtiest rivers on the planet. Mm -hmm. It's 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 they're it's about the dirtiest everything. It's the dirtiest dirt, the dirtiest water, the dirtiest you know lakes and streams and so on. And yet it gets a pass, right? Again, it, it, John Kerry will lecture us on this, that, or the other thing, uh, the way well, we need to change, or the vulnerabilities we need to introduce to our already stressed electrical grid, and yet uh, China uh, is asked to do, in essence, nothing uh, with respect to it. So it is, uh, um, it's worse than a fantasy, right? It's the recognition it's another avenue of attack, and we should see it as such. So you, you two, and I want to plug the book again, The Indictment, Frank Gaffney, you wrote it with her friend Didi Logason, and uh, you've written your book... Uh, with Lin Xiaohan. With Lin Xiaohan, Understanding the China Threat, and I think taken together, they're not 900-page they're not books. They're very, very digestible, and if you read these, you'll understand even more about what we've been talking about for the last hour. I highly recommend it. Uh, Thank you. We've got a couple minutes. Uh, I'm trying to find my way to how we fix this, how we do something about it. Is there at the Center for Security Policy or the Committee for the Present Danger China? What are we? What lines of action are we encouraging people to take? Well, we we actually have 20 discrete steps that we recommend in the indictment as uh, not panaceas, but the sorts of things that will help. And it starts with what I consider to be the single most critical of these uh, problems and the thing, therefore, that singly most importantly needs to be rectified, and that is the elite capture. If you remove from positions of power and influence people who are working for the enemy, whether it's by you know, uh, forced resignation, whether it's by, where appropriate, impeachment, or whether it's by prosecution, you will make a material difference in everything else. Everything else will become easier to do. Nothing's easy, but it's easier to do if you don't have people playing for the other team, as Joe Biden likes to say, running ours. Have you thought about, one of the things that kind of gets buried is that this elite capture is not something we made up to term what's in fact happened, which is a lot of leaders in the United States are, seem to be playing for the other team, as Joe Biden would call it. That's their term. That's their term. Right. They have an actual playbook that says, let's go into every country we do business with and try to own the leadership. And they've done it not just here in the United States, but all those Central and South American countries we World. were talking about, and in Africa. In South Pacific? Yeah. Uh, worldwide. Europe? Asia? So... Do we have a list? It's a little dangerous, I think, to come up with these names because they're tremendous personal vulnerability because these are very powerful people. Mm. Well, we've named a number of them on this show, starting with Henry Kissinger, who arguably was the first captured elite by the Chinese government. And I've been working so hard to not have my show censored. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> now you tell us. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, well, you got to tell the truth. And you're a truth teller. Uh, when Brad, yeah. Brad, lines of action. Uh, e education. I mean, Americans need to educate themselves about uh, the threat uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. And that's able to be done uh, by looking at uh, the literature on this, by informing themselves through the, uh, the uh, resources Frank mentioned. Uh, the webinars are great places uh, to get started. That education allows us to recognize that they're an enemy. They're not an, uh, this is not a misunderstanding. Uh, it's a question of whether the dispositive question of this century, the 21st century, is will freedom and liberal thought the world that the United States created, will that continue or will it be crushed by totalitarianism? Now, that was fought in the 20th century, and thankfully it was resolved to our favor in the last century. It's not at all clear that it will, will have the same result in this century, the 21st century, because of the problems that we've identified. But fundamentally, Americans are good people, decent people, fair people. They recognize that communism is odious, and they recognize the value of the freedoms that, that our political system, that our political culture, that our history has provided, that we're able to make a better world. Uh, we're able to correct problems that we have within our own societies. And that offers, not just for the American people, but for global populations, a far brighter future than the tyranny that the CCP uh, is offering. Uh, and so that recognition, I think, is the start of bringing about all of the subsequent and necessary, equally necessary steps that need to be done, whether that's on Wall Street or New York financial markets, or whether that's in the Pentagon or our alliance uh, relationships. But the start of that is becoming cognizant uh, of the threat and recognizing what's at stake. And what's at stake is the freedom that we've enjoyed in our society uh, versus tyranny. Uh, so the question will be resolved, and let us hope uh, that it'll be resolved to our favor. Amen. Thanks. Brad Thayer, Frank Gaffney, Center for Security Policy. Uh, if you uh, found this uh, video, this show, illuminating, um, please press the like button. Doesn't mean you like what we're saying necessarily, but it is the truth and something we need to deal with. And uh, please subscribe to the, to the show. I'm sure we'll have Brad and Frank back on uh, to go deeper into what we've been talking about and bring us up to date with the latest events. And also please recommend uh, the Bill Walton Show to your friends. I think you'll find we have conversations here you won't find elsewhere. And uh, we will continue to, to endeavor to uh, bring you more. So anyway, thanks for joining. And uh, you can find us on all the major uh, podcast platforms and YouTube and Rumble and on CPAC. And uh, we'll be talking with you soon.